Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Obligations of Memory podcast from the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. I'm Jeffrey Geisner, founder, and with me today from Israel is Yifat Cohen-Mier, and I am so happy uh, to have uh, Yifat. Yifat and I have become friends. Yifat has uh, done a program with me through uh, one of our live programs, and you can find that on the YouTube channel. So welcome, Yifat coming from Israel. Hi, and, and thank you for having me. You're, you're so welcome. And um, really, I want to start this interview the same way I do most of my interviews, is to give you an opportunity, just a short opportunity to talk about your parents, which I know are both survivors, um, where they uh, were before the war, what was their camp experience, but we're going to keep that literally to a short bit, and then we'll move on. So take it away. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, uh, both my parents are originally from Germany. My father was born in Szczecin, which is now Poland and the north of Germany. But with the uh, years, he was born in 1929, end of it. And uh, with years of persecution and all that, the family moved around and eventually he arrived to Berlin in 1939. And he'd been there until 1943. And then with his mother, his father left to England a while before that, and uh, I mean, in 39, and was supposed to take them out as well, but the war broke. So my father and his mother were left in Berlin, and they were there for a few years until um, it was too, they couldn't stay there anymore, and they were sent with a, a transport number 39 to Auschwitz. They didn't know where to, to the east, but that was Auschwitz. Um, arriving there, both of them separated at arrival. My grandmother went to Birkenau and my father to Auschwitz I with a man camp. And he was just 13 and a half, which was usually, I mean, usually boys under 15 were sent to death at arrival. But he was tall and strong because in those years in Berlin, as a Jew, uh, he didn't go to school in some, since 42 and a bit before, and he worked in a cemetery, so he was a strong guy, tall guy, very tall guy. He was um, 1.80 meters, so he was quite a tall guy, and uh, that saved his life because when he arrived, he looked older. No one uh, just um, put him with the man groups, and when they found out, once they found out his age, they just left him there. So he was one of the youngest to be known at um, Auschwitz I. He was part of a, a special project called the Brick Lane School, which was meant to young um, teenagers from 15 to 20. And as far as we know, he was one of the second or so youngest to be there, known to be there at that stage. And he spent 22 months in uh, most, most of the time in Auschwitz I. And when Auschwitz was evacuated in January, 45, he was evacuated to Gross Rosen and then to Buchenwald, and he was liberated from Buchenwald in April uh, 45 by the age of 15 and a half. When did you say, that, when did you say that he went into Auschwitz? In June 43. And he left, uh, he was liberated in April uh, 45, so that's 22 months. And the time of liberation, it took time until I mean, all the survivors were there and he was spending there another two months until he was uh, moving to Switzerland for recovery. But in those two months, he was too weak to walk and um, he made a very unique project uh, drawing his um, life 
in the camps in over 80 drawings, miniature drawings, very informative. Um, and, um, and that became his really his legacy, his, those drawings, very descriptive, very accurate with facts, very factual. And um, that um, th this is a very valuable testimony that is exists up to this day. And, uh, and then he went to Switzerland for recovery and uh, they found his father and he joined his father into England. And then he finished up his um, studies. I mean, he had to catch all the gap of studying for those years, he didn't go to school. So he catch up very, very quickly. And then um, by the age of 20, uh, he also, uh, after graduating from school, he decided to become an engineer. Uh, he, he comes from a family of doctors. His father, his grandfather were doctors and they all wanted him. I mean, his father wanted to be a doctor, but he could not bear the sight of blood and he couldn't do that. But since very early childhood, he was very um, into mechanic, mechanic stuff. And uh, he was like a, a boy engineer since very early childhood. So he decided he wanted to do that. And he became a building engineer. He wanted to be an architect, but they couldn't afford that, those studies. So he became a building engineer. But that was a just amazing closure because at the age of 20, he decided he really wants to go to be part of the new Jewish land to immigrate to Israel. His father, his father did not want that. He didn't approve that. And um, so my father had to kind of uh, get out of England uh, very quickly. Um, Otherwise, he would be recruited to the army in England, and he wanted to take part in the building of the new state. So he arrived to yeah. Israel. When was that? Just help me again. When was that? 1950. Okay. In so 1950, the war, he arrived. The war was over. Oh, yeah. The war was over in uh, 45. Oh, you mean the war, the independence war of Israel? Okay. Yes. I mean, yes. Yeah, just after that. In 1950, he arrived to Israel, immediately was recruited to the uh, Jewish agency and became an engineer and taking part of building Israel from the north to Elat to the end all over Israel. And that was very symbolic because the same boy who was trained to be a bricklayer and build the Nazi war uh, or the Reich um, state or uh, empire was supposed to be dead um, during that. And he survived that, not just surviving it, just he became an engineer and took part of building the Jewish land. So that was very symbolic. And also he recruited to the army. He became an officer in a very special unit uh, of uh, uh, engineering, uh, fighting engineering. So he was uh, helping also with the army. He fought all of Israel, other wars, not the first one, but all the others. He took part there as well. And um, yeah, his testimony has a whole story. I don't know if you want me to go into that yeah. now, but... Well, we want to, let me bring the audience in. You can actually hear the whole testimony at, in the program that you thought uh, presented at the uh, Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group at, on the YouTube channel. He has written a book called The Boy Who Drew Auschwitz, which was the name of the program. So I would want you to go to the YouTube channel and you can literally get all of that detail. I want to take you a little bit back to um, how your father met your mother and 
maybe we can hear a little bit about that story as well. Yeah. Maybe so, uh, yeah, just to, uh, yeah. So um, my, my mother, she was born in Berlin in 1935. So she was a bit younger and her family, um, they wanted to um, move out of Germany by um, 39, 38, 39. And they had uh, few plans, but some of them did not work out. So there was a very short time opportunity to send kids on a kinder transport. And this is less known transport, not to England. Her transport was to Sweden. So they had to make a decision and because they knew they're gonna run, try to get to Switzerland um, and join some other members of the family. So they decided um, that she, she was not even four yet. She and her, one of her elder brothers, um, he was 13, they were sent to Sweden. And her elder brother, he was 15, he, he got to Israel um, and her parents, ran away, they managed to escape for one year through Switzerland and France, but they were, um, I forgot the word for that. I mean, there were people told about them, how they forgot the word. Um, They were exposed um, and sent to the, uh, to France and Dansey camp and to Auschwitz and both perished in Auschwitz. And I didn't mention my grandmother, my father's mother perished in Auschwitz. She didn't survive the camps. Um, so that's her family story. And she was uh, adopted by um, Swedish fam- Jewish family. Uh, first, not, she was just raised by them. And then when they, there was clear that her parents did not survive the war, she was adopted by that family and grew up in Sweden. And once she was uh, in her 20s, she also decided that her real home is Israel. Uh, and she came in earlier, but then she thought she should, to, to contribute something to the country, she should study something useful. So she checked what is needed in Israel. And she went back to Sweden. She studied, she became, um, she was working with special education kids. Uh, she was a therapist. Um, and uh, she came to Israel with a profession a bit later. And then she met my father in, in Haifa, both came to Haifa and they had common friends and uh, they met and uh, got married in 1993, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, 1963. And got three children. My sister was born in 1965 my brother in 1967 and I was born, I'm the youngest, I was born in 1971. So- uh, So are all your sisters and all your siblings living in Israel? Well, my my brother passed away. Uh, That's a whole story. Um, He was uh, in a very special unit in the army and he got wounded in the army. And um, 20 years later, he died from that um, disease and, so that was another story. Uh, it's very connected, but yeah. And he passed away and his family has three daughters and a wife of three daughters. Yeah, we are very tied together. We all live in Israel. And this is also part of the, I believe the family legacy. Yeah, I don't think anyone, any of us would think otherwise. Um, we are all very attached to Israel. 
Um, and my sister, she, yeah, she, we all have three kids, all each of us. So my parents had nine grandchildren and one great granddaughter. So my, my niece, she, my, my sister, she's a granny already. So. so let's talk a little bit about how you're, how you grew up. You grew up in a household with your, with your parents. And there's some things that I know you want to tell us about that. And then I want to ask you, because um, I'm very interested because of my own personal uh, situation around intergenerational trauma, I would like to know from your perspective how it was to grow up in your home of survivors. Okay. Um, but can you remind me the first one? I just forgot what the first, the first should I relate to? You to um, tell me a little bit about your growing up with your with your your parents, I know about your mother. So you want to make uh, let people know about your relationship with your mother and, and her husband, your father. So you know the divorce. So uh, you can mention that as well. Well, my parents, um, yeah, they're both alive. Uh, my my mother is eighty six, um, and my father is ninety two. And uh, very um, special lives, both of them. Um, and people ask us, you know, how it affected you to grow up in a house, second generation. By the way, we're quite young to be second generation. Uh, uh, my father was a young boy, so most survivors from the camps were older. Uh, he's uniquely young. And I was born when he, quite late in their life, so uh, relatively late. So I was around my, you know, my friends, uh, were, I don't think any of them were second generation, maybe third generation. Um, so that was unique, actually. Um, and um, yeah, well, you ask about the trauma and I would say, yeah, part of the story of the Holocaust has the part of the trauma, but it also has the part of um, strength of it or I don't know how, how the right way to say it but um, yeah there, there's a part of the, the trauma and the part that make you much stronger person let's break it down tell us about the strength why do you feel that the holocaust gave you strength and then we'll talk about the trauma so let's do the positive first the positive first uh, well I, I would do the trauma first because I think that get less it's different because also, I mean, I, I can talk so much about that because I, I, there's so many research has been done lately about the, the second and third generation and the effect of being that uh, from our parents. And I, I quite understood the two main differences um, between Holocaust survivors because their story, had, what they went through has lots of effect, how, what and what the effect would be to the next generations. So the one who had the trauma was bigger and not just, a, I mean, everyone had the trauma, but it was a huge change between people who were passively into the trauma and the one who's been active into the trauma. The effect is different on those survivors and the effect on the next generation is different. How, different. Do, you define, how do you define active and passive? Well, passive would be the one who were children, who were hidden, who were sent away. Um, other people had to make decisions to them, for them, and they were less, uh, they had less um, 
uh, ability to affect what happened to them. They were more passive into the events. Got it. Um, and the opposite is the ones that were in the camp. And the one who had the ability to be active, and it doesn't was just related to age. I mean, there were children who did things um, were more active or ran away to the forest or were being part of the partisans or even the ghettos. They, were, they had also roles, even if they were younger. And uh, or people who, uh, children who immigrated and uh, made their own decision to move around. Um, and of course, the amount of family members that you lost um, has also an effect. And what happened to you during the war and after, I mean, so many things affect uh, the way you come out of the So can I hear, trauma. Can I hear from you how you had a strength and, and give us a story about it and how you felt trauma with the story so we can be more- So it's all combined. It's all combined. And so my mother, she was young and she was sent away and her, I mean, her trauma is a bit different. She didn't experienced the Holocaust uh, physically, but she was sent away from her parents at the age of three to a family for, a per for a, you know, not for a permanent time. She knew that it's not clear her, since very early age, she knew that life is not very clear. And that has effect, of course. And, and uh, my father went into the, I mean, went to all those years of war, more or less on his own. Since the age of nine, his father left, his mother was very busy working and surviving and he had to take care of himself. And he was a very independent person since very early age and that affects his way of life, of course. And the way he went through all those events. Um, how, did those events how did those events affect you and your children? And so your my father, um, he was separating his private, uh, present life from his past. So not just that he didn't speak about his events and when we were young, uh, he also, his testimony, his written and drawn testimony, his drawn testimony was not known until the 80s. It was in a safe in my grandfather's safe in England um, and not known. Just in 85, he donated it to, to Yad Vashem and only later they became known. But his book, his book, The Boy Who Drew Ashit, was, uh, it's the la latest version from last year, but his book was published in other names before that, his original book, and that, the first one was published in 58. So his testimony was out there, but under the pseudonym, and the pseudonym is Thomas Jeeve. And very interesting, when my father was 16, arriving to England, journalists started to ask him questions, and he didn't want his friends from his present life to know of his past from very, very Susan. So it's a, it's a topic for a whole new conversation. Why? And what happened to Holocaust survivors after the war in the society in different countries? Uh, he went through England and then went through Israel and the, survive, the reaction to survivors was very interesting uh, thing to talk about in maybe some other time. But anyway, he understood that he has to separate his life from the past and present. To, in order to go on with life and start a new page, start a new future, he had to put his wartime life in, in, a, in a balloon or in a different world. And very, most interestingly, many people did that. Many Holocaust survivors did that, the separation. But most of them changed their names into new, new names and start a new future with new names. My father 
kept his original name and gave his uh, testimony life or his life through the Nazi regime and the war, a pseudonym. And I find it very interesting and I find it very significant to his character because he was a very strong character since childhood and also going through all those events in the camps in his testimony. If you read the testimony, you can see the way he went through those events and how he actually grew up into those very harsh times to become a very special person, although he was surrounded with so much negativity, he became such a positive person. And, and he felt, um, okay, once he was free from camps and being 15 and a half, almost 16 then, and he felt, you know, now I'm becoming a grown up and it's into my hands to decide what kind of person I'm gonna be and what is my contribution to the next, to the new world. So he kept his name, so his when you were, original name. So when you were growing up, did you know that your parents were Holocaust survivors? Well, yes, um, we knew because we knew we don't have grandparents. We did have grandparents, but they were not our real, I mean, not original grandparents. So my father, his father remarried after the war and after his mother perished. So he remarried and, and his new wife, wife became our granny. Uh, she was our grandmother. And of course we knew the story quite early. And, and, um, and also we, we knew she's a granny, but she's not his mother. So quite early we understood that. And also um, my mother, we had our grandpas, we called them Momo and Mofa, that's the grandparents in Swedish. And they came every year in Passover for a week. And we had connection when we knew they were not her real parents because she, we also have an aunt and a, an uncle from the adoptive family. So we knew the family story. And also I have an aunt, half an aunt from my father's side. So we knew the family origins, but my father never talked about his experiences. Also, he had, a, he has the number on his arm as an Auschwitz survivor. So um, that was quite clear. Uh, to everyone, but no one, including his friends and co-workers and so on, no one knew his real story. And no one knew that he's Thomas Jeeve. No. Uh, that you knew he was a survivor, didn't know he wrote a book and didn't know about his drawings. And my mother knew, and just very, very few friends. And we knew there is a book when we were a bit older, I don't remember exactly when. And um, I read the book for the first time when I was just 21. And the book was written in English and I'm not a native speaker. So my English was not good enough to read the book. But when I was 21, I went to England and with a dictionary, uh, there were no Google Translate those days. So with a dictionary, I started to go through my father's first book from uh, 58. And I read it. Um, I couldn't understand everything, but I vaguely knew the story. But Wait, in the last- So before you go there, I want to come back to your family story. So yeah. we're, we're getting close to the end of this interview. We may do whatever. Okay. But so tell us a little bit how you met your husband and tell us about your family. Oh, I met my father, my husband in a, through junior, uh, through um, the youth movement. Um, and um, and uh, it was many years ago, uh, 36 five years ago. Um, we have three children and um, 
yeah, and uh, we live in uh, we lived for a while in our family house, uh, but it was sold. So that was very special for me to live where I grew up and graze my children in the same house. But it's not there anymore. And um, I, I just go want to go just for a moment back because I didn't answer, really answer your question about how it affected our lives. Mm-hmm. And I go, I combine that with your question now because it affects everyone's life, also our children's life. And first of all, the way we treat life is different. I mean, we appreciate life. Also losing my brother was part of that, but losing family, uh, most of our family uh, took part, you know, very active part in our life. But we took it to the positive way, meaning that we appreciate life, we uh, adore life, and endure life, you say, you really, you know, it's really valuable to us, not just our lives, everyone's life. And we are very, in, in various ways, we are all very activists, um, are social activists, and we take part of... Um, doing everything we can to create a better world, a better society. Uh, We're very attached to Israel, as I said, and we're very active here uh, in social. And how old are you? My children? Yeah. My eldest daughter, she's almost 25 uh, very soon. And my son is 20 and my youngest daughter, she's 15. Okay. And so how would, if I ask them through their point of view, how would they think their parents have managed through the being a child of the Holocaust? Uh, my, my husband, um, I mean, his father also came from uh, Romania and they also went through the process of some of the Holocaust, but they're not really survivors. He was younger. So it, it's just my side, but it's a fact. They have each of our I would say all the grandchildren, not just my children or my, my brothers and sisters' children, they have those sensitivities. For instance, talking about the Holocaust or going to Poland in Israel, teenagers go in high school and they can go to Poland. It's quite um, a thing to do. And some of our children could not do that. It was too much, for too sensitive for them to do that. And some of them felt very important to do that, uh, for instance. And another example is uh, all of them uh, their army service had lots of meaning for them. And they chose to do things, very, very um, significant things in the army, various things. Uh, but also uh, many of them had the opportunity to talk to their soldiers, uh, the one who'd been officers, um, to talk to them. They take officers to Yad Vashem and they were talking about their grandfather's experience and uh, they feel very proud to do that and the ones who went to Poland talked about their father's the, the, the family experience and they they feel attached to it and nowadays when the, my father's testimony is very active and they hear it more and more some of them uh, uh, took the testimony to their own school to their co um, friends in, uh, to the friends in school and some of them felt it's too much to talk about that to their friends so they're very different mm-hmm. uh, but they all have some kind of relationship to the topic and to the issue of the Holocaust not just because it's our private family history as Israelis it's part of our DNA not just the private DNA also the the uh, national DNA 
to all Israelis has something to do with the home. It so affects I, everyone here. So I started to ask during this uh, interview with second gens that I'm interviewing, my parents always had sayings growing up. I had to turn off the lights. My father would say, do we own stock in the PPNL company, which is the electric company? Or because I wasn't eating and I was a really bad eater, my mom said, you know, their children uh, would be dying for this food in China. So I always would say, well, let's just start digging and I can dig a tunnel to China and give it to them. So are there any sayings that your father and mother that you can remember and that you're saying to your children? Um, not of that kind. Um, actually, I think we felt those things even with, without them being said. And the way we cope with uh, difficulties in life, challenges in life, uh, without just, they didn't say anything. It just reflect to our, I mean, uh, my, my brother, he went through very hard times um, and he wrote a blog, an amazing blog. And he wrote there many times, you know, how my father is an inspiration to deal with difficulties in life and challenges and not to give up. And if he survived what he survived and never gave up. So all our children say that, you know, when time of difficulties, like in the army service or other places, you know, when you're very cold or you, you okay, it's freezing cold. And you say, well, my grandfather or my father went through the snow of Poland without proper shoes and thin clothes on him. I mean, it, it goes through your mind. You can't avoid it without anyone saying anything. It's just part of us. So, yeah, it affects. And um, the one story was that, well, I was very tall as well. And as a, as a girl, I was ashamed of that because I was always a head taller than my friends. And when I was about 12 or so, I, I started gradually going um, bent a little bit just to be at the size of my friends. Um, and one day my mother said, you know, she told me the story of my father. She said, you should be proud of your height. And that height actually saved your father's life. And she told me the story of my father, that how he arrived and he was sent to be with a man and he tried to fix it. He went to SS officers and said, you have a mistake. I'm, I'm, I'm much younger, but he, he let him go. And actually that saved his life. So he said, you should be proud with your height. It's, it's a, a matter of pride in the family. And also my father, when he arrived to Auschwitz, he was 13. And when he got his number, the tattoo number, first thing he did, he looked at his number, he add up the numbers and it add up to be 13. And he wondered whether that would be a lucky number. And apparently it was. And 13 became kind of a lucky number in the family. Both my parents has things with 13 and also in the, our family, we went on with that number. We got married on the 13s and so on. So you have lots of little stories and big stories that uh, goes, but I feel most of them are in a positive way, in a strengthening way. And we keep on doing, you know, trying to dig out the good of those experiences. There's a huge uh, philosophy of my life. You can't change what happened. And uh, it's very sad and traumatic, but if we take the past and we do something about it, we learn from it and we do something about it and we do anything we can to change the present and the future to be better, I believe that's a way, our way to respect our 
grandparents and parents um, and ancestors, other family, family members, whoever perished, also the children who perished, you know, everyone who perished in those horrible circumstances is our role as a next generation to make a significant life and do anything we can. It's our role to avoid those things to happen and you so know, respect other people. So speaking of roles, what are you doing today with your career that is following in the footsteps? Yeah, it's a, another huge topic, but um, I, I'm a social activist in various ways. I'm a social worker and work with families and other things, um, a few other pro uh, professions as well. Um, but uh, around COVID, I couldn't go on doing what I usually do. So, uh, at the same time, we had the Charlie Ingerfield who found my father's testimony. He started the process in helping us to reproduce our, uh, my father's testimony. And I, I was a connect, connection person, but I became very active in that. And actually it's the last two years or almost three years now, uh, that is my main role in a main occupation. I, we republished my father's testimony. I went through his testimony, you know, being a grown-up now. Now I know his testimony in a very different way than the first time I read it. I understand the importance of this testimony, the uniqueness of this testimony. And I feel that my life um, mission, um, just to make sure present and future is better, that we do anything we can to rise up everyone who needs to be held up and uh, supported, support everyone and to really be active toward peace and unity between people. So dealing with that, I, I didn't think it would connect, but I understand every day that I understand more about my father's testimony and I meet people like you and other projects. I was very blessed and lucky to meet. Uh, every day I meet new people and I understand that actually, um, especially after COVID times that we, we wake up, humanity, humankind wakes up and say, okay, we can't afford living in the dark past. Is, there's no room anymore to the dark past. And we see how different it could be. And once we unite, uh, we are one humankind. I mean, it's ridiculous actually to fight and you know, war now in Ukraine, it looks so much out of the frame. And I wish more people would do more to stop it. But I think we might need another reminder how awful it is and how important it is that we won't stand aside and we do everything we can. I know Israel do a lot. Many people do a lot, a lot around the world. And I hope, um, I feel it's so everything connected. So I'm privileged to have this testimony as part of a passage I've done all my life, but now it's all, all the dots connected. Yeah, uh, and I, again, want everyone to listen to um, the recording of the boy who drew Auschwitz on the YouTube channel. Yifat has been the facilitator of that testimony. It was beautiful and emotional and teary-eyed at times for me. Uh, we share many similar things. My grandfather on my mother's side was in Auschwitz in 1944 in May. So there is a chance that there is a possibility that you knew your father, uh, um, much older, but I really uh, find it to be so enjoyable to meet you 
And one thing that COVID did was to enable this technology that I could actually touch you and hear from you and become friends with you. And we've never met physically, but we've always had this connection, which is beautiful. So I wanna thank you uh, for participating in the, and being a pioneer, so to speak, in the Obligations of Memory podcast. And um, I, I wish you and Thomas well and your family, and thank you uh, for participating here today. I want to thank you so much for the opportunity and uh, for giving me the stage uh, for the second time now and for your amazing project. And I think, I do believe uh, COVID had their the, um, effect, the effect in, uh, that people do those special things more and more and uh, the ability to connect with each other, as you say, and become really one, one world of uh, unity of people. And thank you for your part in that. And uh, um, thank you for, you know, I, I feel privileged to be here. Mm -hmm. And um, thank, thank you so much for listening.